0: This fall we're learning, learning about the Lord, learning about ourselves by listening in on conversations. We're eavesdropping on conversations that Jesus has with his disciples or other people and that's filling in things that we need to to know about and when we eavesdrop on this conversation with his disciples in Matthew 18, it's a very densely packed conversation. As I thought about it, it's it's like uh, taking a pregnancy vitamin pill. Remember that? Uh, some of you are like, no, I've never been pregnant. But I remember it because my wife came home. You know, she's pregnant and she had a big bottle. Because these pills in there, they're like the size of your fist. Because they've got to they have all these nutrients for you. They've got to have all those nutrients for this child that you're growing. And Matthew 18 feels like a pregnancy pill. It's a lot of nutrients coming down all at one time. And my hope is whatever the, the piece of, of health, spiritual health that you need, you'll receive this morning. When you, when you begin in the book of Matthew, the, the, the theme of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is coming in Matthew to say, hey, I'm the king. There is a kingdom of heaven, and the king has actually arrived. If you remember, just as we think towards Christmas, the the wise men in Matthew, who do they come to find? The king. We understand a king is here. And so Jesus comes to proclaim that he is the king, to demonstrate he's the king on one level, but then in the second level, he's inviting people in to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, and then he says, hey, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, this is how you live. This is the way it looks like if you want to live inside the kingdom of heaven. And probably the best-known teaching from Matthew comes from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really just how you're supposed to live inside the kingdom of God. If you're really a follower of Jesus, well, how am I supposed to behave? That's what he's trying to answer in those chapters. And that's what he's trying to answer in these chapters as well, 18, 19, and 20. And if I were just to give a title to chapter 18... This is what I would title this chapter, The Radical Requirements for Those Committed to Christ. The Radical Requirements of Those Committed to Christ. So if you sit here this morning and say, Well, I believe I'm committed to Christ. Well, then there are requirements. To, to get into the kingdom, it's it's by the grace of God. But if you're going to live inside the kingdom, there are requirements. And there's five of them here. We're going to talk uh, mostly about three of them. And then the, the final... Uh, One we're going to talk about next week So first there's a radical commitment to humility If you're going to live inside the kingdom of God There's a radical commitment to humility Then there's a radical commitment to holiness There's a radical commitment to one another There's a radical commitment to how we handle conflict And then there's a radical commitment to forgiveness Which might be the toughest part of the swallowing, and we'll do that next week. So, first of all, let's think about these uh, first four: the radical commitment to humility. Jesus comes in on the on a discussion, verse eighteen, verse eighteen, chapter eighteen, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "Just imagine how sad this made Jesus. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Man, that's got to have been frustrating. I don't know if Jesus ever rolled his eyes." But if he did, it would have had to be right here. And calling to them, calling to, to him, here's this group of men standing around arguing about who's the greatest. He brings in a little child. He puts him in the middle and says, Truly I say to you, unless you, are, unless you turn and become like, like a child, you're never going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are pulling out a leftover argument in the refrigerator and reheating it. They've had this discussion before about who's the greatest. And it just doesn't seem to sink in. So slow learners learn ve- better visually. And so Jesus says, well, I mean, I've tried to say it a number of times. Let me bring in a picture. So he brings in this child. And he says, look, you've got to become like a little child. And if you don't, you're not going to fit into the kingdom of heaven. So the child is not held up as a model of purity. He's held up as a, as a model of humility that the child doesn't, isn't aware of their social status. Isn't that a great thing about being around children at some age? They're just not really aware of their social status. I mean, probably if you went into the two- and three-year-old room, they're not aware of who's rich or who's poor or who's black or who's white or who's a girl or who's a boy. It's just, it's just we're all in here. We all seem like the same it's not, they're not aware of their status in any way. And that's what Jesus is saying is, is when you come into the kingdom of God, you can't be primarily aware of your status because you're going to be focused on the greatness of God. But if you're focused on your own greatness and who you are compared to everybody else, you can't fit in. Your head can't get through the door. Of the kingdom of God because it's too focused on you. It's too much about you. And that's what he's trying to help these disciples say. Hey, you need to be focused on the greatness of God. You need to not be thinking about the crowd around you, but thinking about God. I had a great little moment last week. My son was visiting my grand and he brought my grandson, which really was the most important thing. And Daniel Paul is his name. He's two years old. And so Zachary, my son, goes and gets him after the service. And they're standing in the sanctuary talking to their friends. And I'm standing at the door sort of doing the meet and greet. And Daniel sees granddad and points to granddad and says, I want granddad. So so Zachary puts him down and says, run to granddad, run to granddad. So he runs, and I don't know this is happening. All I feel are two arms wrapped around my leg, which doesn't usually happen at the meet and greet door. So I look down, thankfully it's my grandson, not somebody else, and I pick him up. <clears throat> and later that day, my son was saying, Yeah, I just said, don't, don't look at anything else, just look at granddad. You see the point. You come in here, it's a crowd. It's, it's great as it's a crowd, but does, it doesn't matter where you are compared to anybody else the thing that you want to be focused on the thing you want to run to is jesus i need to worry about if i'm old or young or do it looks like i fit in here or where i am socioeconomically. all that stuff is like coming into jesus and saying well where do i where do where am i in my crowd he's like that's not what you're supposed to be worried about you're supposed to be focused on me so to to fit into the kingdom of heaven you have to have a a radical commitment to humility. Not thinking about yourself so much. And the disciples struggled with that, and maybe maybe that's a struggle for us. Uh, somebody at the door, one of my former friends, saw this event unfold. He said, Paul, is it okay if I come up and grab your leg next week? Like I said, former friend says stuff like that. Second... Lee, there's a radical commitment to holiness. There's a radical commitment to humility. There's a radical commitment to holiness. Verse 7, woe to the world for the temptations of sin. The the world's like a, a, a tide coming in. It's necessary that the temptations come, but woe to the one by whom they come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter in life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. (laughs) This is a this is a radical commitment to holiness. Now I I assume everyone knows that Jesus isn't advocating self-mutilation. He's trying to make a bigger point here. He's trying to say if you want to come into the kingdom of God, drastic action is going to be required. Drastic action is going to be required. You're going to have to set up some boundaries. You're going to have to cut some things off if you want to get into the kingdom of God. You might remember in the book of Daniel, this famous Old Testament prophet, he was taken out of Jerusalem when he was a young man, probably college age. And he looked like a promising person, so when Babylon came in to take over Jerusalem, they just took all the promising people and left all the poor people behind. And so Daniel was taken into Babylon, and Babylon was trying to reprogram Daniel. They changed his name, they changed his language, and they changed his education. And he realized that he was getting into this brand new culture that was trying to turn his old world upside down. And if he didn't draw some kind of boundary, his appetites would become used to this new culture. So he had to draw some kind of line. Remember the line that he drew? I can't eat the food of the king's table. It wasn't that the food was bad for him. It was that I needed to draw some kind of line to say, I'm not going to get used to this way of operating in this world. I'm not going to allow my appetites to get so hungry for the offerings of this culture that I can't say no anymore. He realized that once his palate was conditioned to the cultural food, then the king could manipulate him any way he wanted so at some point, Daniel has to say, hey, this is a barrier. I've got to offer some kind of resistance. I don't know if you know the uh, Christian artist Josh Garrels. I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, he has a song called The Resistance. This is what he writes in one of his lines. Follow new rules with invisible strings and become a puppet in a diabolical scheme. How do good men become part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. See what he's saying? There's there's a regime with invisible strings and it's trying to pull you to make you behave, to give you certain appetites. And how is it that good men fall into this scheme? They don't resist. They don't have any way to curb... Their appetites. They don't draw any lines to say, hey, I'm not saying that's bad. I just know that's the thing that would cause me to have an appetite that would be so insatiable that, that somebody else could control me. A great book if you're 20, maybe 18 to 35 by David Kinnaman. It's called Faith for Exiles and the subtitle, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in a Digital Babylon. Here's what he says. If literal Babylon were around today, the internet would be, the, be in the imperial toolbox. So if we had a, a real Babylon, one of the primary tools that it would use is, is the internet. A new empire is knocking at our door. It's trying to reprogram us. And many of us are cheerful participants in our own colonization. You hear that? a new digital Babylon is in your hand and invisible strings are being pulled and many of us are cheerful participants in our own colonization. We don't know how to draw a digital boundary. He goes on, we're at the front end of a digital revolution that is tinkering with what it means to be human. We're all residents of a digital Babylon now and we better learn how to resist. I mean, that's important for me, but I'm 56, so I had 45 years of not much digital life. But I think about my two-year-old grandson who already starts swiping. He's in a digital Babylon. And if you're 18 or 20, you live in a digital Babylon. And it's moving Invisible strings. And you could be a good person and be caught up in its schemes because you don't have any resistance. So Jesus is saying, at some point, people, you're going to have to cut something off. You're going to have to draw some kind of boundary and say, I can't go there. It may be okay for you to go there, but I know that stirs up appetites, and I can't feed those appetites because then they begin to control me. And I wonder if you know what that is for you. Remember this story? I think it was two or three years ago. This guy was kind of a rock climber guy. And he fell. And his arm got trapped between these two rocks. And I think it was a couple of days he was there and he realized, my only way out is, what, i got to cut off my own arm. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. You can stay in the digital Babylon and die. But there's something for each of us that needs to be cut off. But, oh, it's so much better to be in the kingdom of heaven than to say, well, I live with two arms, and you're in danger of eternal fire. There's a radical commitment to humility. There's a radical commitment to holiness, There's a radical commitment to one another, which I really won't spend much time on here, verses 10 through 14. Even if a little one, a small person in your group, strays away, go find that person. So you see somebody missing here, and you say, well, whatever happened to... And Jesus is saying, hey, you're supposed to go find that person. Don't wait for them to come back to you. You go find them. You go chase them down. You have a radical commitment to one another. And finally... You have a radical commitment to constructively handling conflict. So this will be our fourth point, and we'll talk about forgiveness next week, verses 15 through 20. When people come to a church, I'm sure it's not different in another church, but here, one of the primary things if I say, hey, what are you looking for? One word that is pretty consistent is I'm looking for community. I'm looking for a group of people that somehow I feel like, whatever it means, is I I can fit in. And I think that's wonderful. But I want to tell you that real community is forged through conflict. Real community is forged through conflict. It's not like I'm looking for community where no one addresses any problems I have. And I don't address any problems that anybody else has. That's that's not real community. That's fake community. But so often people come in and they think, well, this person's starting to address my sin. I'm not interested in that, so I'm going to run to another church. I don't want somebody, I don't want to join, and I don't want somebody's weight coming on me in some way. And so Jesus is trying to say to the people, hey, in order to have real community, you've got to have some ways to handle conflict and he gives us three steps here and I want to just go through these first verse 15 if your brother sins against you if in the Greek can be translated a couple of different ways so or when I think those are better choices here he's not saying you might join a church that wouldn't you wouldn't have any problems with conflict I don't think that's what Jesus is saying I, was thinking, I think he's saying, you're going to join a church, and when you do, you're going to have conflict. So what do you do, when you do when you have conflict? So I think the first thing Jesus is trying to do is lower the bar of expectation to say to the people who join here today, you're going to have conflict. Let's not be surprised. Whoa, they have conflict in that church. It'd be like me coming to your family, and you have an argument, and I go, I can't believe this family has an argument. I mean, that would be foolish, would it not? I mean, every family has conflict. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, no, that's not us? I mean, no, everybody does. That's how the family gets forged together. It comes into contact with the family, and it's forged. And if it's done well, it forges a family into a stronger unit. Same way with the church. So the first step is that, that we don't want to be surprised. We don't want to be fatally discouraged. That somehow Christians are failing us or we are failing other people. So Jesus adjusts our expectations. When a brother sins against you, step first one, I'm not going to be surprised. I can be disappointed. It can be frustrating. It can be difficult. I'm just not going to be surprised. Step two, notice what he says. Go and, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone you think there's a problem the burden on addressing the problem is on who it's on you well he sinned against me and i'm just going to wait until he comes back to me no that's not what jesus is saying that's why it's a radical commitment to handling conflict in the world I might say well just leave that person alone until they come back to you you come in here it's reversed no if you feel like there's some kind of tension it's on you to go and address that tension And then notice Jesus' goal is to, to get him back or to gain him back, it says. And that word is a banking term which indicates wealth. You see what Jesus is saying is that every person here has incredible value. And you're going to gain something of value back. I'm I'm putting value on every person, and I'm willing to engage in this thing that's difficult because I think you're valuable. John MacArthur says this if you're not willing to confront someone's sin, then you don't see them as having any value. Isn't that true? you're not valuable enough for me to go address it. I mean, I don't, that issue, that problem, that energy it takes for me, I don't want to do that. But what you're saying to that person is, you're not all that valuable. He goes on to say, Christ sees them as having value. In fact, he paid the infinite price for them. He gives us the responsibility to do the same. So Jesus' goal here is restoration, not ruin. When, when I come into this conflict, I may say, hey, this is going to be difficult for me. I, I hope you'll hear me, but, but your relationship to me is so valuable. I want to gain something back. I don't want it to be where it is now. We had something that got lost, and I want to try to intersect in a way to gain you back. And my goal is restoration, not ruin. Say, say that with me restoration, not ruin. Now look at your neighbor and say, restoration, not ruin. See, that was tough for some couples sitting in here. <laughs> because what, what, what is your first response when somebody hurts you? Hurt them back. Somebody pies you in the face, right? What do you want to do? You want to take it all and then, then throw it back on them somehow that's the way by sin we've gotten wired is somebody's hurt me and so I want to hurt them back. I want them to have ruin. I want to have, the, I want them to, I want to have revenge. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Because you could have anger that's justified but you actually want to ruin the person. You've got to learn how to, handle conflict, got to learn what's happening in your own heart first. What's my motive as I as I go to talk to this person? Am I just hoping for revenge? Am I hoping for ruin? I don't know if you sometimes get lost on the internet and you watch stupid videos. It doesn't happen that much to me, so no judgment please, but somehow it's these little videos that like fail videos or, you know, things like this. This is what is entertaining if you can't figure out what to do with your sermon. So um, (laughs) this one was called instant karma. You know what that is? That's, you know, you do something and you deserve to get something back. I'm not saying that's a Christian thing if you're listening on tape or anything. So, you know, so instant karma. So it was these people who did something wrong and immediately there was a payback, right? So there was this one that I'm thinking of, this little cat was on the other side of a windshield and was kind of pawing at this guy's foot, and he wanted to scare the cat, so he pushed his foot against his windshield, and he broke his own windshield. It's like instant instant karma, man. You're supposed to do that. Or you cut somebody off in traffic, and who you cut off is, oh, an unmarked police car. Uh, Instant karma. They deserve something, and you wish it happened instantly. And if you come into a conversation like that, you're not going to have good conflict resolution. If you come in saying, you deserve, I'm hoping for your ruin. Then you need to step back first. We'll say more about this next week. And you need to get yourself underneath the grace of God towards you. And try to let that wash all that bitterness out. Before you appropriately come forward and say, I've got, to, I've got to address this issue but it's to the gain not, not to revenge and not to ruin one question here and one comment Proverbs 19 11 says this a man's wisdom gives him patience but it's to his glory to overlook an offense so my question is how do you know when to overlook you know this if you're married. You can't say everything you wish you could say, right? I mean, you don't have a good marriage if you've got to say everything. But some things you just have to overlook. But how do you know? How do you know when you're supposed to say something, when you're supposed to overlook? I think that takes wisdom. I think that's what the person in Proverbs saying is saying is that it takes wisdom to know what to do with that. And I would say when you're overlooking, you want to make sure you're not sweeping something under the rug if it feels like, hey, there's an issue in my life, there's an issue in my family, and I don't want to address it, I'm sweeping it under the rug, but our family keeps tripping over this thing, then it's time to address it in some way. If it's constantly coming to mind, if it's constantly degrading your relationship in some way, then that would be the time to confront and not overlook. If you're starting to go cold, if you see the person in church and want to go the other way, if you, want to see, if you see the person at the grocery store and think, I'll just head down a different aisle, then, then probably you need to say something because it's beginning to eat a hole in your soul. This one guy who's a good friend of mine who does a lot of conflict resolution at his, at his job, he said, Paul, you know, one of the things I do, I think, I think if I think about it in the shower, then I need to say something. And I thought, yeah, I've had a lot of long arguments in my shower. (laughs) Just with me and that other person, right? And I know exactly what they're going to say. I know exactly how I'm going to answer them. And he's helped me say, hey, if you're having that kind of conversation, it's time to say something. You can't overlook it. So that's my question, my comment, is when you say, I think I need to have a conversation Notice it's face-to-face. That's not Facebook-to-Facebook. That's not texting. That's not email. If you're pounding on the keys while you're writing an email, yeah, it's time to delete. I had a good friend of mine call me and said, oh, he's real hot about something. He wanted to put something out in his neighborhood newspaper, which I thought, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) And so he, can I read it to you? Yeah, yeah. So after he finished... What do you think? I mean, he was so justified in what he thought. I said, I said, you know, you're probably right. But why don't you go ahead and delete that? It's not gonna be helpful. You're gonna stir something up here. And if you've got that much energy, you need to say something to somebody face to face. It's not gonna come, come out well in a text or an email. So we have a radical commitment to conflict resolution. One, just we're not surprised. We're not, we, we can be disappointed, but it's not, it's, we're not going to be just destroyed by entering into conversations that are difficult. That's, that's part of a family, your nuclear family. That's part of this church family. Secondly, we're going we're gonna to confront the person, but we're going to do it with a heart of gain. I want to gain you back. I'm not trying to punish you. I'm not trying to get revenge. I'm not hoping for your ruin. But then there are times it just doesn't, you just can't get anywhere with one other, this one other person. And in that case, step three, you need help. You need help, verses 16 and 17. You say, I need to bring a couple of people in to see things that we can't see because we can't seem to get out of this, this rut that we're in. And I want to say this very clearly. Everyone in this room is going to get into conflict that will require outside help. Every single person in this room is going to get into conflict somewhere in their lives that's going to need, it's going to require outside help for you to get out of. So I don't want you to be the one that thinks proudly, well, I don't need counseling. Counseling is for weak people or something. No, getting outside help is normal. That's a normal thing. I've gotten outside help. I've been the person giving outside help. That's a completely normal thing for a family dynamic. That's a completely normal thing for a church dynamic. So as your pastor, as your friend, I would encourage you, if you get to a point and you say, we can't get resolved, get outside help. Try to go sooner rather than later. Because when you go later, you end up in my office and I sit there and go, You've hurt, you've hurt each other so badly. It's not that it can't be recovered, but the recovery is going to be a lot longer now than if you had said something early on in this issue, early on with your marriage. So you're going to need outside help. The the principle that we have here in Matthew is we're trying to keep the circle of people involved in the conflict as small as possible. We don't need to broadcast it. We're just saying, I, I need one or two people to come And Jesus foresees this, that there's going to be a need of time for that happens. And I just want you to know, when you get outside help, and you will, you give up a little bit of control. Because somebody else comes in and has a little bit different vision. Remember Proverbs 18? The first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. So most of the time when somebody says, I need to bring this person in for this issue, guess what they find out? They have a little bit of an issue too. So when you bring somebody else in, they're going to start pointing some things out. And maybe most of the effort is on their part. But I just want you to know that using these outside resources, whether that's me, an elder, a counselor, these are all normal parts of living together in a community. Now, the majority of conflict rev- resolution in a church is going to happen in those stages. You're going to overlook something. You're going to say, I can't overlook, so I'm going to try to enter in. I'm going to try to enter in with a good heart and try to restore not have revenge. I need outside help, so I go to a counselor. I get a friend. They come and help me. That's most of, of this. But there will be occasions that something will bring up to the church, and there are... Uh, provisions for that Jesus tells us verse 17 there's you're not going to bring it before the whole church you're going to bring it before the elders and you're going to enlist their help their prayers and I love how David Platt says this God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin he'll send an entire army of believers to us to demonstrate his love and mercy so God thinks we're so valuable he'll, he'll get a whole church to somehow be involved in praying or rescuing these people and then there are the most extreme <coughs> circumstances where something's happened and somebody needs to have some authority to put the person out they become a danger to the people on the inside of the church and i want you to know that doesn't happen very often thankfully here it probably doesn't happen that often in other churches but you do want to know that's in place if you're in it if you're a visitor here you do want to know somebody's looking out for the health of the church and wouldn't allow a person to come in that would be destructive. 25-year-old man came here one time, immediately started walking college girls to their car, demanding phone numbers. It took a couple weeks before college girls started coming to my office saying, hey, this is starting to feel weird. So we talked to him, he had some mental disabilities, and he was a danger. So we said, hey, we'll get you help, we'll pay for help. The elders could help you, but you can't come back to church right now. So you want somebody who's willing to say, okay, there's somebody looking out for the health and help of our church. And so this is how you have a healthy community. Jesus is saying, this is not some advice for people out there. This is how you operate inside this little group right here. And so I'm wondering, just as we think about these different parts of this vitamin today, is the, the part you needed to swallow, was it humility? For some reason, your head's gotten too big, you can't fit in anymore. You're worried about your status. You're, you come in and you look and you compare and you make sure you're in the upper tier, whatever that is. Maybe, maybe for many of us it's a radical commitment to holiness. Just when I was saying it, you thought, yeah, I've got to draw a line. i got appetites that are controlling me. I'm not controlling them. For many of us, we, we enter into conflict in some levels every week. Just hearing how Jesus wants us to navigate that can help us. And I think the toughest part of this pill to swallow actually is going to end up being next week when we talk about forgiveness. So let's pray together. Lord, we, we're we here this morning to, to be learners. We don't see ourselves right. We don't actually see all the invisible strings that the world wants to pull us at. to to manipulate us in some ways. We're not all great at conflict resolution. Most of the time we think we're justified and it's just hard to get out of these old sinful patterns. But you have kindly given us your help here in these ways. So I pray for your, your sons and daughters that you would have spoken to their heart today. Help them see And then help them have the courage to apply what you're talking to them about in their hearts, in their minds, in their week ahead. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song.